John the Apostle is writing, and he's writing to the church, and he's writing to the church because there were some false teachers who had upset the church. Doctrinally, they taught false things about Jesus, and we will see those and have seen those, that they were teaching things like Jesus didn't come in the flesh. Morally, they minimized the seriousness of sin. And so they begin to say, well, you know, they, almost like redefining what sin was, how it could be um, uh, committed, whether or not you could commit it on earth and it'd be okay. Just a lot of different things that they uh, minimize about sin. Socially, in their pride, they failed to love the church and left it. And so you kind of see that at work. And I think it's important that we see that. And under, We going in and out here? We good? All right. And so I think socially, you kind of, when you think about that, they, they, they were going to walk away from the church. And the first church would, would greatly be struggle, you might say. They would go through difficulties. And, and, and as a result, sometimes people would walk away from it. So John is seeking to help the church overcome some of these things and give them like a clear picture that they have fellowship with God to assure them that they have fellowship with God. Last week, we did look at the issue of sin and we said, we are sinners because we inherited Adam's sin. We're sinners by nature. We're sinners by choice. All of those things, we understand that about sin. And we answer the question is, how can fellowship be restored? How can we have fellowship with God uh, in spite of our sin? And we said, by being, being united to Christ by faith, we must trust that by his life, death, burial and resurrection, that we are reconciled to God and to one another. We also learn to strive to put off sin. And that when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and He is the payment for our sin. He's the propitiation for our sin. So we've kind of been traveling this deal of John introduces us to Christ, and then he says that He is the light, He is the life, He is the eternal life, that we have relationship with Him, uh, that sin can hinder that relationship, that fellowship with Him, and we must address it rightly, be honest about it, cling to Christ as our only hope. And today, when we're looking at this, he's trying to give the church assurance and say, listen, this is how you know that you are in the faith, because the way you uh, interact with God's commands, by whether you obey or disobey God's commands. And so today we're looking at that issue. And so I think it's important that we understand that because we live in a world where everybody, uh, it's always important for us to remind ourselves of this. A lot of people claim to know God. We live in, in not just a world in the sense of the whole world, but in, in the sense of like living in this part of the world. A lot of people claim to know God and a lot of people claim to know the Christian God. And so it's a, it's a very common thing that you hear people say that they say we know God. And it might be that sometimes it's kind of like uh, I was thinking this week of people that might be well known in our area. Someone like Ross Perot, if you've been around for very long. You realize uh, who he is. You've heard of him. He's a he's a man that is an entrepreneur that's a billionaire. And he's done things in Texarkana because he grew up here. And so you kind of automatically go, oh, yeah, I, I know Ross Perot. But but do you really know him? That, that's kind of those things. You kind of know him by association with this town. Someone like Truman Arnold, another successful business owner who owned Roadrunner. It was a big deal like in back in the 80s or whatever, and he sold it. And I mean, there's a lot of different things. You say, I know that person, but you don't necessarily know him. 
you're, you're kind of like you know him because you're associated with maybe a Christian area where everybody talks about Jesus and everybody knows Jesus. You know, it's like this, everybody, you know, it's all, everybody's going to heaven. You go to a funeral, everybody goes to heaven. You know, it's just that kind of world. And uh, that, that's just kind of the way that people think. And so I think it's important that we understand that when you're saying you know someone, you may say you know their name. You've heard their name. Um, you, you might even hear someone talk about something like, uh, I don't really know anyone in my church would be another example. They're not saying they don't know somebody. They, they, they know the names of people in their church. They might have even met them more than the Ross Perot thing. They've met them. They've talked to them, but they don't know them. That's another kind of example, I think, of saying, Okay, well, what does that mean? It means you're moving to a more personal level. Now, when you hear a husband and wife or wife say about their spouse, I know them. You realize that you're going to a deeper level of a knowledge of them. And I think it's important when we're thinking about our walk with Christ and and saying that we know him. We have to ask the question, do I know about him? Like I went to church as a kid. Or maybe even I know a lot about the Bible, and so uh, I, I must know the Lord. I know Bible verses. I went somewhere, they taught me Bible verses, I regurgitated them, therefore I know the, know the Lord. It, it, all those things, there's a lot of different levels of what we're talking about. But I think it's important that we understand what it means to know the Lord and what is the evidence of our knowledge of Him in the present. That's a big question. Because again, like I don't think we always ask that, but there's there's evidence of that knowledge of the Lord that should show up in our lives. If someone says, you say, do you know the Lord? And you say, well, tell me what that means to know the Lord. I think a proper response might be, I know him because he first knew me. I know him because I've been born of God and he has changed me. I know him because he's placed a love for him in my heart and I long to obey him. I know him because I love his people. I know him because when I fail to obey him and walk in his ways, my heart is broken. I, I know him because I see the evidence of the knowledge of knowing him. And so I think that's important. Your obedience to the command to love reveals that you know God. That's kind of what we're looking at today. It does not make you know God. You got that? Obedience to the commands of God, externally or whatever you want to say, those things do not make you know God. Those things do not allow you to know God. Those things are things that you would say, they reveal that you know Him. It reveals that God is, the the Father is your Father and that Jesus is your Savior. So I think we should kind of leave here today with the confidence that if your lives have been characterized by obeying the command to love. Then you should have confidence. If you see that working itself out, you should have confidence. And if not, you don't see a heart of love for God's people, then you should not leave here with confidence. You should repent of your rebellious and indifferent heart towards God and his people. And trust in Christ alone to save and change you. I think it's, we need to see that. 
understand that's very helpful for us. Now, we're going to unpack that as we move forward. So 1 John 2, verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. What does it mean to know God? So as we kind of start there, when we say that, we've kind of mentioned that, but we're going to delve in a little bit deeper. What does it mean? I mentioned earlier that He knew us. Jeremiah 1, 5, the Scripture says about Jeremiah, God says about Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. So to, be, to know God needs to first and foremost, we need to say we know but God because he first knew us. God had set his love on him. Second, we know God because he uh, because we have been born again throughout John's gospel and throughout the first John. You're, we're going to see that being born of God about being spiritually birthed. Later in this book, we'll look at the concept in, in, a very, in much more detail. But I think it's important that we say we have to be born of God to know God. You, you have to be born of God to know God. You have to have been born again. That means that you've had a physical birth and you've had a spiritual birth. Without a spiritual birth, you do not know God. Because you have to be born of Him. You have to be born into His family. It's very important, I think, that we understand that. What evidence have I seen for that? You say, I am, I know God, I've been born of Him, I've been brought into the family. What is the evidence that that has taken place? For some of you, you might say, I used to hate God's commands. Uh, we talked about this last week, but like the younger brother in the prodigal son story. Or I used to seek to obey his commands externally through ritual to get what I wanted from God or others. Like the older brother story. Both of those. I think if you were to stop and say either one of those, you could say, I remember those days. And now at this point in my life, I actually love God's ways. I enjoy fellowship with him. I enjoy fellowship with his people. I love his commands. I love his people. I want to learn with them, worship with them, serve them. All those things move forward in reaching the nations with them. The evidence its so important that we understand that the evidence of a knowledge of God means I am longing to obey God. The evidence that I've been born again. That's what I say with parents. They say, can we talk about our child and where they are spiritually? I say, listen, you're looking for you're looking for a shift in their lives. You're looking for a transformation. They've been physically born. Now they need to be spiritually born. Do you see evidence of spiritual birth? What is the evidence for spiritual birth? A longing to obey the commands of God. What does that look like? To love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. To love their neighbor as themselves. Are, they, are you seeing the evidence of that growing out of their, their, their saying, I know the Lord. Do you see the evidence of it? It's not a bad thing to look for evidence. John said when John presents the evidence of someone who's been born of God, he gives that as a, as a sign for assurance. It's a way that he speaks to the church and says, do you want to be assured that you're in? Do you want to be assured that you have fellowship with God? Do you want to be assured that you are with God and one day on the last day you will be with him eternally? Then you see it in the here and now by how you respond to his commands. Do you have a heart of obedience? You have a heart of obedience. 
this is so confusing around here, but like when you when you say you have faith in God. It is not a mere like intellectual ascent. There's a God. It is a God that's defined in Scripture and a God that calls you to submit to him. It's an act of the will. I'm aligning myself. I am coming under alignment with His will, His purposes, His ways. I am trusting in His means for salvation. I am walking in that. I'm clinging to that. I'm hoping in that. I'm living for that. So it's, I think it's very important. This is supposed to be encouraging. It's to move you forward. But the confidence here, the way that the church could have assurance is by looking at their life. Not some knowledge of God. I had this experience in the past and I just believed. And then it never affected my life. Just saying, when I'm birthed by God, I align myself with His ways. He is my Father. His commands become my commands to follow. Verse four. John makes a positive statement about assurance, and then he moves to like three statements that address kind of probably the false teachers of that day. Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. Again, he starts with whoever says. There are many who claim to know God again, we just see that over and over. We live in a world like that. They're lying and the truth is not in them. They are not trusting and walking with Jesus. John's point is not that they knew him in the past. Listen to this. John's point is not they knew him in the past. And then when they broke his commands, they were no longer they no longer knew him. His point is that they never knew him. You catch that? They claim it. It is one thing to claim to know God. It's another thing to truly know God. It's not that they're in and out of fellowship. They never had fellowship. So it's very important, I think, that we see that to know him is to to walk in fellowship with him and to obey him. To be born of God, it produces fruit in our lives. As I said earlier, to know him is to be known by him. What a frightening thing to hear at the end from Jesus. I never knew you. I claim to know you. I never knew you. Often. um, When you look at the Old Testament, sometimes you try to think about what does it mean in the Old Testament to know God, New Testament to know God. I mean, there, there is some differences, I guess you would say, in the way the Old Testament looked and the New Testament looked. And just kind of stop there just for a moment in this way. The Old Testament covenant community was made up of believing and unbelieving people. Not everyone within Israel knew the Lord. I think about that sometimes because I think it's important we understand it because we see Israel in this rebellion all the time. We say, oh, just like Israel, we're rebellious, right? The, the danger of some of that is thinking is that you understand Israel, everybody's a part of the covenant family of Israel just because they're born into it. Just like It's almost like coming to church and say, my mom and dad always went to church. I went to church. I don't really own it. 
Israel was kind of like that. There were people within Israel, in the covenant family, but they weren't necessarily children of God. If you look later, you'll see there was a remnant within the church kind of that knew the Lord. Even even further, you might say there is evidence sometimes of like this very empowered work, like you'll see something like Samson empowered by the spirit of God or the kings empowered by the spirit of God. And you see a very powerful picture of the display of God working within the children of God and specifically within their leaders. Now, when you move to the New Testament, the New Testament presents the church as not just believing and unbelieving, but as a believing people. A believing people that have been transformed from the heart. A believing people who the Spirit of God has worked in their heart, brought about the new birth, and given them a longing to obey His commands in a very powerful way. And I bring all that up to say to you, we need to understand that under the new covenant that Jesus brought about, there was a powerful moving of the Spirit of God, working within the children of God, and producing them an obedience to His Word and to His commands, and a love for that. It was not the, the new covenant community. The church is a there are a people that have been worked in. I mean, God has worked in their hearts. They they are to walk by the spirit. It should evidence itself in a believing life an obedient life. So I just think that's important that we see that because you might say, well, you know, there's like these there's like these kind of nominal Christians. They believe in God, but they don't obey God. They don't walk with God. They're Christians. They just don't walk with God. I don't think that's that's a biblical thing. John would not agree with that. So I think it's important that we understand that and grasp that and think up on that. John 14, 17 says, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him, you know him. For He dwells with you and will be in you. The Spirit working within us, producing an obedient life. Verse 5. But whoever keeps His Word, in Him uh, truly the love of God is perfected. Someone who obeys His command has truly experienced and and embodies the love of God. You could translate this in different ways, but I think the, the heart of this is that those who... Those who really know the Lord make it their ambition to love God with their whole life. They make it their ambition to love Him with their whole life. One author says, since keeping the commandments or God's word certainly involves living out the commandment to love one another, the love of God reveals to us in Jesus Christ reaches its perfection when the same love is shown to one another. And to the God who abides in the Christian, God's love achieves its purpose when we keep his word. When we live that out, that's how it's perfected. That puts it on display. That reveals to the world. Jesus says they will know you. They will know me really and know who I am really by the way that you love one another. The evidence of a transformed life is how you love one another. How you give your life in service to one another. How you obey His Word and long to do so. Think about it this way. Do you think about it um, when you think about your love for God? Do you think about loving with your whole being? Do you think about completely obeying His Word? 
Do you think that if your love for God was at its at this level that your joy would be diminished if you loved God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all do you think that that would like not bring joy to you? Sometimes I think we struggle with that and we say, oh, but, but really we say as a Christian, we long to obey him because we know that's where joy is found. Why would we ever think that we could be satisfied in another way? So love for God manifests itself in obedience to his word. Now, that gets you to this other place of saying, do I love his word? Do I long to understand his word? Do I practically study his word? Do you look for opportunity? Do you seek every opportunity possible to gather with God's people around his the study and application of his word? That's an evidence of a transformed life is we long to know what God has said. We long to apply what God has said. We want to do that with one another. Do we do we do that? Do you listen to sermons because you enjoy critiquing them or because you want to apply the word of God to your heart and life? He's saying like the evidence is and I'm telling you, I remember as a very young Christian, I grew up in a church. It was a it was a good church. There's a lot of great people there. But I remember um, and, and honestly going to, to a lot of different things. And sometimes you go to these functions, you think. You don't feel like a real camaraderie with people because they don't have anything to talk about, spiritually speaking. They just don't have anything there. Uh, you think, where, what's going on there? Sometimes you meet them and you think, you claim to be a Christian. You don't treasure Christ. You don't treasure His Word. You see no evidence, only a hardened person. You are not softened towards the Word. You're silent before the Word. Your face looks like it goes to another place when I bring the scriptures up. And you say, you know God, but you don't love him. You know God, you don't love his word. You don't love his ways. You're not seeking after him. I remember going up to this place in Colorado and meeting up with some people. And I felt like I'd been with them my whole life. I feel like 30 years from now, I could go back and meet those people and I would start, just pick up the, the conversation where it started because they loved Christ. They loved His Word. They sought to apply it to their lives. They were not arrogant. They were humble before it. They were humble before one another. They were prayerful for one another. They were seeking to advance the gospel together. The evidence of a changed life, that, that is what it is, is a longing for his word and a longing to see it transform you and this body. And if you just kind of think about church as just coming and getting something for yourself rather than investing in other people, you've missed it. That is not love. Love is something where we are seeking together to apply the scriptures uh, as a group. It's very important that we see that. Look at the end of verse 5 and verse 6. By this we know that we are in Him. Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. What is meant by abiding? We might say it's, it's one of those things that's mentioned a lot in John's stuff. To be in, to remain in, or to abide in is used like 35 times in John's writings. I would say maybe the best way to say this, when one is born of God, he has been begotten into an intimate relationship with each member of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. They're united to them. 
And it is keeping of the commandments that bears the witness to this union. They have been united to Christ. They've been united to the Father, Son, and Spirit. There is a relationship, an inseparable relationship. And they are now people that will be, the evidence of that will be how they live. Just, it's there. It, it, it shows up. Ultimately, it says you'll walk in the same manner as Jesus walked. Jesus completely obeyed the Father's every word. He did nothing on his own initiative, but only what the Father told him to do. He says that over and over. He completely obeyed his word. So I think it's just important we say we we must first know Jesus before we can walk as he walked. Without a knowledge of him, there's no way that we can know how he walked. And without a relationship with him, there's no power to walk as he walked. You got that? Without a knowledge of him, his ways and sitting down and and saying, how did Jesus walk? How did he live? There's no ability to do so without that deep relationship, that union empowered by the spirit. You can't do it. He he is working that out in us. The scripture says, if you're attached to the vine, then fruit will be produced to be united to him. You know, um, we if, if you grew up in and I'll, I mean, like a Baptist context, you might have heard. And, and we uh, there's people that grew up in that way. You'll hear uh, people discussing it. And rightly so. Sometimes as they'll say those Baptists are once saved, always saved people. That's what they kind of threw out all the time. And uh, what a dangerous thing to be identified in that way. I mean, not I, I, I'm not saying it's wrong to identify the the Baptist church in that way, because a lot of times it was kind of that way. It would be this thing like I, I, uh, John three sixteen, I believe in Jesus and by golly, I'm saved. You know, and you're like. What about evidence? Does evidence matter? Nope. Little Johnny was saved at 10, lived like a hellion till 30, died in a car accident. Little Johnny's in really. Johnny did never walk with God. Little Johnny never really lived a life of faithfulness. You never saw the evidence of the Spirit at work in Johnny. What, what are you hoping in? Are you hoping in the end that Johnny who lived in rebellion and hated Jesus by his life, that he's there? I mean, are you kidding me? Christianity is teaching and John will teach us that the confidence is that one who has been born of God, repented of their sins, trusted in Christ, the evidence of that work that happens by the Spirit's power produces a life of seeking after God. They are not saved by their works. The evidence of their salvation is their works. No evidence... I would say you should not have any confidence. It's very important. I think we see that. It's a very, it sounds like I'm saying it's not, it is encouraging if you see the evidence of Christ at work. It's encouraging if you see love for Christ, His Word, obedience to it growing in you. If you see that love for the church growing in you. The commitment to the things of God growing in you. There's great confidence. Be at ease. 
If you're living here in this context and you think because you prayed a prayer at some point in your life that you're good, you better listen. We are to obey the command to love. We're to know God and keep His commandments. We see in verses 7-11, through we're to learn the new commandment and love others. Beloved, I am writing to you in verse 7. You, I'm sorry. Beloved, I'm writing... You know, new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard when he calls them beloved. It's a great sign of endearment. He says they're close to his heart. It's I'm telling you, he thinks of them as believing people. He's seeking to give them assurance. There are these people out there that are not. There's people out there saying, like, you don't have to obey the Lord. And so here, what's so powerful is he's saying, no, obey the Lord. And you're kind of, I think there's an encouragement that they're walking in that way. He's speaking to them in that way. It's very important, I think, that we see that. Now, in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 7, he says, I'm writing no new commandment, but an old commandment. It's the command here to love, the summation of the law. Is to love God and love one another. The focus here is on loving one another. I don't think that cuts us off from loving God. I think that's united there. If you go back and look at the very early in the Bible, Leviticus 19.18 says, But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love has always been an evidence of someone who's truly walking with God. Verse 8. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light has already come. Now, how is this a new commandment? It's a good kind of question to think about. Aiken writes, the law of love is new in the sense that it is seen in Jesus and established by him through his death and resurrection. He said it's a new commandment that's it's brought out and established in a very powerful way by his death and resurrection. The command is also new in that Jesus, by his obedience, fulfilled the whole law and gave its depth and gave it to, to us the depth of the meaning of it. Jesus did not allow it to just be external ritual, but for it to come to the heart. And he and he did that. He displayed that for us. Finally, the command is new because for those who believe it, it makes possible a new and eternal life in which they are motivated by the grace of God to fulfill the law of self-sacrificing Christ-like love. Those who've been united to Christ, have been empowered by the Spirit, there's an evidence of that working out in that God's grace is working in them and motivating them to sacrifice in love for one another. Just produces that. I think that's very powerful for us to see that. This old commandment and this new commandment both crying out to us, love, love one another you'll notice the basis for that because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining john contrasts the darkness with the light here the darkness being confusion and no understanding of god what he's revealed and the light is kind of a picture of fellowship with god and understanding his ways John declares that the new commandment is all it's kind of been brought together, established by this new age that's coming in and crashing in. Jesus Christ, the light of the world has shown up and John is speaking to them about that. The light of the world has come to destroy the darkness of sin and death and to inaugurate the kingdom of God. 
Jesus brought in a new age, a new age of love for one another in a very powerful way. It's an age, it's patterned after light and love. That's what we see kind of unfolding in Jesus' ministry in his life and among his people. Listen to this. This is a very powerful thing. The transformed lives of his followers provide infallible evidence that Christ's victory was secured. You see that. When you see that love on display, the battle's not over. There's still all these things. But every time you see a Christian living out the call to love, you say it must be true. It is true. Look at their sacrifice. Look at their giving. Look at their serving. Look at them offering themselves up to Christ and walking in his ways. Look at that model they're setting. They're a picture book to not only the church, but to the world of this is what it's all about. This is how it's on display for us in the here and now. That should be one one of the greatest encouragements in your life is to see people standing firm. You ever done that in your home? And you're sitting there and you hear your husband or wife begin to talk. Or you see your children, the way they're walking and what they're thinking about. And and. And you, or you get around your family, a godly family that's not just running off, I mean, with wild kind of things or what, but like engaging in like a, a, a way that you say, I see Christ in that. It encourages me. I want to walk in that. I want to move forward in that. That, that. That's one of the most beautiful pictures for us to understand that Christ's kingdom is come and he will come. Verse nine, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness Someone says they're in the light. They've been participated in the life of God. They've been opened up to the realities of the gospel. And they hate their brothers. They're still in darkness. They're devoid of life. They're living in a state of death. They are dead to the things of God. They are not empowered to love the ones that God has loved, that Christ died for. There are some people, and I mean, they could be in the church. They could be in the church who do not have love. They do not have the ability to love. They do not have the ability to forgive. They do not have the ability to serve. They do not have the ability to to, uh, speak kindly of people. And you see them and you meet them and you talk with them and you say, hold on just a second. The spirit of God is not in that. That is not the Spirit of God. Hatred is not the Spirit of God. Ugliness is not the Spirit of God. Backbiting is not the Spirit of God. Evidently, they're in the church, but they may be outside of Christ. That's a scary thing. And so when we're looking at this, we're saying, this picture here is one who claims to know God, but hates his brother, is still in darkness. He has not been enlightened. He has not had the Spirit of God change his heart. The Spirit of God is not ongoingly changing his heart. You do not see it. A frightening thing to see that. And I've seen that in churches where you say, man, this church is filled with angry, bitter, hostile people. You ever been around that or heard stories and you think, is that evidence of grace? Is that evidence of a transformed life? Is that evidence of the Spirit? You say, no. John is saying the evidence of the Spirit of God is to love. 
Verse 10, whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. And they love. It's the greatest evidence that they've been transformed by the gospel. Whoever loves his brother. That's the evidence. Well, I love them. Really? How, how does that show up? How does that show up? Kindness, gentleness, service, sacrifice. Well, how does that show up? What does it look like for you to be loving your brother? It's both about what you, listen, say and do. Your words tell what's in your heart. Your actions speak of what's in your heart. How you live, what you give yourself to displays what is in your heart. If you're meeting with a genuine believer for a short time and you ask them, what are your short term and long term goals? It should be something like, I want to glorify God and build up this church and reach the world with the gospel. That, that, that is, that's what I'm most focused on. That is the direction of my life. I want to see that take place. Verse 11. But whoever hates his brothers in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I think you could say that someone someone could be very hostile towards the church, indifferent towards the church, on both sides. You could say, before God's people, you could be hostile or indifferent. You could be just silent or disruptive. I mean, either one of those things. You could still say, it, it, you, you want to see the evidence of someone's life change. They will love the church. It will seek to honor the Lord. If they don't, do not listen to them. If you meet with someone and you're watching their life and their actions and all that kind of stuff, they are not light. They're not the wisdom of God. They're not speaking the ways of God. Don't listen. If someone is a destructive force towards the things of God, the church of God, you better be careful because they're walking in blindness and they are like what Jesus said about the Pharisees. They are the blind leading the blind. They claim to have all this wisdom, but you don't see it and you don't see the evidence of love and they're not overflowing with service to God, service to His people, love for His people, love for His Word. You don't listen to them one minute. Because they're blind. They are not walking in the light. What a danger. To claim to know Jesus. And to hear the frightening words at the end. I never knew you. Depart from me. Instead we should desire to hear these words from Jesus. Well done. Good and faithful servant. What gives you confidence that you will hear? Well done, good and faithful servant. 
First John three twenty three, and this is a commandment that we believe in the name of the son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Well done, good and faithful servant, you trusted in Christ, you love my people. That's the picture of what it means. And we have to ask this morning, and I hope you don't just walk away from this service and say, but, but ask, do you see the evidence of the life of God at work in you? Going to church does not mean that you necessarily embrace the two commands of trusting in Jesus and loving God's people. You should see an active, growing love for Jesus and a growing love for his people. The love that you have for him and his people will manifest itself in tangible ways. Your attitudes and actions should reflect what you claim with your mouth. As James says, faith without works is dead. Remember, it's both passive and active works. It's not just that you would do evil to the church, but you, you do good. If you walk out of here today and say, man, wow. I mean, that that is like almost more than I can bear. I think I would remind you. It's a warning to confess your sins. So we learned last week. Confess your sins. He is faithful and just to forgive. And to cleanse us. That's what he says. That's the grace in the moment. We have an advocate. We have one who is the propitiation for our sins. Confess those and walk in love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would help us see more clearly what it means to be faithful to you. Lord, we want to be confident of our relationship with you. Lord, we know that the way we get confidence is by trusting in Jesus, serving his people, loving them. It's the evidence of a changed life. It does not bring us into fellowship with you. It proves our fellowship. Let us remember that. Wherever we've sinned, Lord, and all of us have, we confess that before you. We want to be right in our relationship with you and with one another. We just confess, Lord, that we struggle with that. And we ask that you, for your, by your power that we would put off those sins and put on righteous living. In Christ's name, amen.